Premium Hoops presents Sense and Scalability. Welcome back to Sense and Scalability. Fifth episode now, still going strong. And I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Evan Zaucha and Cody Hodek. I'll start with Evan, as I do. How are you doing, Evan? Doing good, Scott. Um, we've gotten into a little bit of a habit of waking up on Saturday morning and recording these, which is pretty much the best possible way to kick off a good weekend. Um, and we have a great topic today. And it's just great to be here with you guys and chatting and ball. As I say every week, we've got a tradition. Yeah, and my role in that is completely rearranging the outline an hour before we start recording. Um, I just had some coffee from a Keurig. My new apartment has a Keurig. I was kind of morally against Keurigs because they were so wasteful and like it all that plastic. But now that I have access to one, like I get it. Like it's, it's really compelling. Anyway, how are you doing, Cody? I think what you just did was describe the theory of capitalism. So that's another good way to kick off this podcast. Uh, but yeah, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm ready to talk about some basketball. Okay, so we'll try to not get towards the perils of capitalism and talk, yeah, about basketball. And our topic today is, well, it's scalability, specifically offensive scalability. That is in the name. And uh, we've kind of talked more about the role of the stars in the context of an offense, whether it's our wrong initiator episode Um, whether it was like kind of the addendum to that in the second episode, but we kind of touched upon the roles of the ancillary or role players in those episodes, but we want to kind of get more in depth about the specific skills or micro skills that lend themselves to being a good role player, a good third, fourth option in a, championship level offense let's say um where do you guys want to start this because there's a lot of different traits we look for in these players so i think the best place to start probably given the the way that a lot of fans view the league and the way the game is played right now um the easiest place for me to start is probably just catch and shoot jump shooters um the idea that the floor is more space than ever um and that a shooter's gravity can kind of create Um, driving lanes for a creator uh, is really compelling. And I think it's one of the biggest principles of most, most uh, modern offensive schemes. So um, let's talk, let's talk about how important shooting is for role players. The most compelling case for it is these are players who, you know, they're going to be involved and have the ball and get their chance on some possessions, but more often than not, they're going to be off the ball and it's much easier to have the action not run through you if you can space the floor for others, right? If you get a guy like Rondé Hollis Jefferson, who's a very competent role player in a lot of ways, but not a good shooter. A lot of the actions that the Raptors ran last year, you know, had to involve him. They couldn't, they they had to account for the fact that he would be providing nothing if he wasn't in the play. Um, So if you're talking about guys who aren't normally in the play, it's helpful if they can still provide value when they're not. Yeah, and there's a couple different ways that these guys can provide value. And so the ways I generally think about it are either, um, well, basically the threat of your catch and shoot jump shot um, makes you a threat whether you have ball in hand or not. 
And so there's a couple different ways that that threat presents itself. Either you, you there's the threat that the defense is going to allow you to to cash a nice three point jump shot, um, and that's just an efficient look that's always going to be there for you if you're a reliable shooter. Um, or once that threat has been established, that defenses are going to have to close out on you. And once they do, you've created the advantage another way. So um, catch and shoot can be a huge threat for anyone uh, who is able and willing to play off ball consistently. And I think something we're going to end up differentiating between later is just, you know, not every NBA action involves all five guys like Scott was play, saying. And so one guy might just be standing in the corner and you might have to give him more attention or it's going to be somebody that's going to be moving around and running through screens and going through action. And then they're going to be a threat in that way. So it's almost like two sorts of ways that shooting is important. A, just kind of standing in the corner and spacing the floor or B, being the focal point of an offensive action where the entire defense is like, oh, no, we can't let this person get wide open at the top of the key or wherever else that they're running to. I'm really glad that you mentioned it's not just catching the ball and putting it in the hoop uh, from three. There's a lot more to it that we're going to get into that leads to how to you know maximize your role in this situation. I want to share this quote, as I often do, from Ben Rubin on this uh, rules, 20 rules for the 2019 draft. I think it's the second time this article is getting a shout out on the podcast. Um, rule number four of 20 for the 2019 draft of his on stepion.com watch out for the fifth offensive player. A lot of the players that are considered sleepers in any particular year are unfortunately going to wind up as fifth offensive players. In other words, guys who are wholly dependent on their teammates to create for them and can't do much besides hopefully being able to can a three pointer or two or be on the finishing end of a pick and roll or a pick and pop. The problem with these players is come the highest leverage playoff games, often aren't all that useful. Of course, there are exceptions. These players tend to spend at least a decent amount of time at power forward or center. Guys like PJ Tucker, Chris Anderson, Ben Wallace, Tyson Chandler, or historically notable little things to win games wings, like Shane Battier, Robert Ory, or Danny Green. They are also incredibly rare, don't exist in every draft, and as such, it is difficult to pick out the players who might who, 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 who might become this. Um, so yeah, basically you need a little bit more juice in so few words. So let's talk about how you can provide that. Cody already talked about movement. Let's kind of unpack that and talk about the skills a player can bring before the catch. Um, and obviously movement is good, but it has to be smart movement. It has to be calculated movement. I think about Danny Green. He had this quote. Uh, that our guy Jackson Frank posted preseason about like being experienced and exactly how to move off of post players and teaching, you know, the younger guys on the team, how to do that. You know, he played with Tim Duncan, Anthony Davis, Joel Embiid, um, Kawhi Leonard, even kind of a post guy. And uh, I think people think of Danny Green as just a guy who stands still and hits threes, but I think this shows that there's a lot more to his game that might not get noticed, but is just as important to why he's effective. Um, so I'm going to bring up Danny Green a lot because I want to push back against the idea that he's a simple, simply a catch and shoot guy. I mean, he is, but that kind of underscores it. And I think even taking movement away and making its own discrete skill away from shooting is also an important factor here. So like Danny Green, like you're saying, shooters aren't just standing in the corner. Like, 
the NBA isn't played four on four with two guys standing in the corner, one just guarding somebody that's just going to stand there and shoot. That's just not how it works. Right. And, uh, same goes for creating shots for players that aren't necessarily going to get their baskets from catch and shoot threes. So I always think of Jimmy Butler when it comes to movement too. So there are a lot of plays last year, especially that I was watching where um, he wasn't just standing in the corner, isolating to get his basket, right? He was running around and he would see an opening towards the basket and sprint towards the basket so that he could get the ball and score that way. And so that just shows the importance of movement and getting yourself an open shot. That's not just standing or creating for yourself. So I know we always do tie move two three-point shooting but I think like I said movement needs to be discussed as its own discrete skill uh, that can be scouted and developed throughout yeah and movement is just so critical because movement is and especially when combined with shooting is so scalable for any good coach Um, there's just like a million different ways you can weaponize that movement to blow up defenses make them give away what they don't want to generally give away um, draw double teams move players around and force switches Um, So really popular examples that people think of often are the way the Warriors use Steph Curry and the way Miami uses Duncan Robinson. And so those are weaponizing movement shooters. Um, And that's great because that, I mean, three points is more than two. So if you can get those guys open off screen action, um, snaking pick and rolls and stuff um, just to get open out on the arc, um, teams are constantly going to have to be aware of that. And they're warping the defense because their defender has to either stay attached man to man or the defense has to communicate perfectly when to switch. And so uh, it's really just an absolutely chaotic weapon in terms of blowing up um, defenses. But movement presents itself like we were talking about, especially Cody mentioned with Jimmy Butler in a lot of different ways. Um, And I think movement itself definitely should be considered a separate skill because um, if you're not a movement shooter per se, you can still be very valuable with smart movement as an off ball cutter. Um, Maybe you're just a better athlete and not necessarily an excellent three point shooter, but um, you're toolsy. You can finish above the rim or through contact and you know when and where to get open off ball um, in the perfect timing for that. So Movement is just critical for building an offense that's versatile, scalable, and um, hard to counter in playoff situations, especially. I also want to talk about uh, Duncan Robinson and Stephen Curry, because we always do talk about them. Like the first thing that you mentioned when you say either one of those players is how much they move and how much of a three-point threat they are. And so somebody that might be new to the game might have an honest question that's like, wait a second, then what separates the two? If Duncan Robinson's catch and shoot three-point percentage is at least in the realm of Steph Curry, why isn't he having the same impact on the offense as Steph Curry? And that's what we're going get, to get into later is tying in all of these different skills together into one scalable package. Um, so for instance, when you even think about movement, something that Stephen Curry does so much better than so many other guards is the fact that he can run around and screen uh, for his teammates. And so he can set a strong screen and then that throws off the defense more because you're like, wait a second, this is the guy I'm supposed to be chasing around. This isn't the guy that's supposed to be setting a screen. And so when you think about that, Steph Curry's movement is transcendent and his shooting is transcendent. So it's not just that he is by himself one of the best shooters ever, but he's also maybe the best movement player ever, especially when you combine other skills like screening. And let's talk about Duncan a little bit more because you kind of had a bone to pick with some all-time drafts, or rather you had two drafts that were like, okay, so I should backtrack a little bit. During the beginning of the pandemic, we were all in our basements um, and we all kind of teamed up with our friends on NBA Twitter to do a bunch of like drafts. Like, I, I don't know, I was a part of a few where we just didn't have any basketball to watch. It was normally when the playoffs would start and 
Cody, you were into that we're drafting all players 2000s onward. Duncan Robinson went sixth in one of them and seventh in another one. And uh, this is kind of a point I want to bring up because we're going to talk about like the importance of how often the shot goes in. Like, I, I think that it's really tough to figure out how much to value a 45% three-point shooter versus a 40 versus a 35 uh, because anything above 35 is usually at the threshold where you're running a healthy offense. Um, and it's really hard and, and, and just percentages of three-point shots can be really fickle, uh, have a lot of variance. So it's very hard to figure out exactly how we should value how good a guy is, whether he's great or historically great at three-point shooting. Yeah, let me add a little bit more context to that. So I was I was in two specific drafts, and I feel bad because I don't want anyone that was uh, the person that picked Duncan Robinson to listen to this and be like, oh, how dare you come at me like this. Um, but I had one draft that was all post-2000s players, and then the other draft was an all-time draft, and you only had to pick eight players. And in that all-time draft, Duncan Robinson went in the sixth round, and in the post-2000s draft, he went in the seventh round. And I remember thinking, especially in the all-time draft, I was like, really? Should Duncan Robinson be picked between like 100? 180th and 210th in an all-time draft like great his shooting is wonderful but 84 percent of his shots right now are coming from the three-point line his free throw rate is like 10 percent or something like that he's not bringing a ton of other things to the table so i'm like am i crazy for not valuing three-point shooting and movement on their own as much as other people are and i feel like this might be i don't want to say an overreaction but when people first like really get into the NBA and they're like, oh, Carmelo Anthony's actually not that valuable being like the high powered scorer. He wouldn't scale next to other players. And then you start valuing portability and scalability more. And that's kind of where we get a couple of years ago where people were like, oh, Robert Covington is like the fifth best player in the NBA. And obviously that's an exaggeration, but we always have these kinds of players. And I was like, I don't know, like you're saying with threshold, is Duncan Robinson shooting 46% on catch and shoot threes last year? going to add that much more to an offense than other skills that you could be drafting and so I don't know I don't even know if I said anything coherent but these are just things that I think about when I look back at some of those drafts that I was in yeah I think that's totally fair and I think to some extent um, NBA Twitter especially people who are deep into the weeds like we are can kind of over index on those outliers like Duncan Robinson and Seth Curry so to break each guy down in a little bit more depth what makes Duncan Robinson so special is besides the movement principles, his ability to find gaps in the defense, um, his ability to move off ball, utilize screens and DHOs and just just a million different varieties of ways to get the ball. Uh, Duncan Robinson is very tall. Um, he's one of the tallest players to ever like fit into this archetype. Um, and he's a pretty smart off ball, like a pretty smart passer who keeps the ball moving if he's not going to shoot it too. Um, and so especially the size just makes it so hard and gives him just a higher threshold um, in turn, or I'm sorry, lowers the threshold he needs to hit like on defense and everywhere else really, because the movement shooting is so, so uniquely valuable for him. Um, and to go into a little bit more detail on Steph, uh, I've said this before, and I want to reiterate that it's not supposed to be a disparagement of Steph Curry, but in some ways the player that Steph is, um, is almost like if if you had to describe it as like a an archetype, it's almost like one of the most valuable role player type skill sets of all time. Because realistically, what he does best is almost an off ball player's um, job generally, um, and usually that job is left to role players like Duncan Robinson. But Steph takes it to the next level because not only can he find those open spaces on the floor. Um, he, 
it, once he sets up the shot, his handle is incredible too, and he's a really gifted passer, and he never, ever stops moving. So teams have to double double him all the time, um, over-index on him on the defensive end. He warps everything. Every gravity study that's ever been done shows Steph Curry is just uniquely talented as an off-ball weapon. Um, but when you compare those two to guys like uh, another guy who kind of fits in that off-ball catch-and-shoot movement shooter archetype is Matt Thomas for the Raptors. And Matt Thomas has a hard time staying on the court um, compared to those two, even though he's also a very uniquely gifted shooter. So um, I think height is really, really uniquely portable for uh, these movement shooters and also the ability to handle the ball as a secondary playmaker or even a primary if, if you're good enough um, kind of separates the lower ends of this archetype for me from the middle and upper echelons. I want to talk about whether we overvalue portability because this is something I think about a lot, Cody. I think we kind of overvalue the ingredients of championship teams in the sense that a lot of guys who are on them, and I'll call the Heat a championship caliber team, you know, for now, a lot of guys who are on them um, would not be as good on other teams, right? These are teams that have been maxed out in a lot of areas and it makes a huge difference to the heat that Duncan is like a 45, 40 to 45% shooter versus a 35% one, because they already have a lot of the core tenets of their offense in place. And he's a ceiling raiser, as we like to call it. Um, I think of the warriors about how they had a bunch of ceiling raisers. They had Igadala, they had Draymond Green, they had Clay Thompson. These are all guys who I think you'd get diminishing returns from if you didn't have the infrastructure to extract the entirety of their skill set. Um, in Iggy's case, he has just transcendent on-ball defense, transcendent off-ball reaction time. And that was all made more easy because his job on offense was just to hit open corner threes. He is the elusive fifth offensive option that Ben Rubin was talking about, but he is so good on the other end that he's worth the incubation. Not every team can incubate him. We found that he ran into spacing issues because the, because the forces, uh, because like the gravity of their other four players wasn't as strong as on the Warriors. Um, so that's one. And then Draymond, obviously, he's picking apart advantages on offense. You know, the defense is going to be great no matter where he goes, but he's picking apart advantages on offense that are there because all of his teammates are such crazy off-the-dribble threats in Steph's case or just general spacing threats in, like, Clay's case. Um, and then Clay Thompson, obviously one of the best at moving off ball, you know, historically great shooter. They were able to find him time and time again for open looks. And he probably, I think people underestimate how good clay would find those looks anywhere. Um, but certainly it was amplified by the warriors. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it's always a copycat league, right? And so sometimes people want the ingredients of these championship caliber teams without realizing if their team can support that. And this is kind of a team building exercise in the, in the sense that, these teams are kind of over-indexing in, on what's successful now um, instead of considering what might be successful in the future or how to adapt their their disparate parts or their um, 
their kind of independent team building strategies and the assets that have been available to them so far into a scheme and a team building design that works for them and that can be um, scaled upwards going forward. So in the article that you mentioned earlier um, by Ben Rubin on the Stepian, the 20th rule in those rules is basically pay attention to the fundamental order of operations when it comes to team building. So we mentioned this in the past podcast, in past podcasts, um, when we talked about um, teams that draft kind of these more dependent player archetypes, um, those dependent player archetypes generally hit their prime on other teams, um, on other teams that win and not the team that drafted them. Because uh, I think to some extent, f- over-indexing on these these role players with portable skill sets um, is kind of putting lane change assist and a turbo into a car that doesn't have an engine. Um, and given the way that the NBA is salary capped and the way rookie scale contra- uh, contracts are constructed, it's just very hard to time things right. You're trying to hit a moving window. So if you do take those more dependent players first, yeah, it's great that they're a wonderful fit on a winning team, but that winning team is probably not going to be you unless you have a primary creator. So you're kind of just developing players for better teams who thought uh, further ahead um, because you wanted to take what's popular now. Um, and I think this is a pitfall that a lot of rebuilding teams have fallen into in the past year. I think you can name uh, the Bulls as a pretty prominent example that I tend to go back to when it comes to these roster construction order of operations issues. Um, and they still don't really have a primary and they have a lot of good dependent talent. But I think a lot of that talent and we're going to see it with Lowry Markinen probably next year um, is going to end up on another team. Whether or not he can maximize those opportunities is a question for me, I think. But um, his skill set will fit well on a contender as long as they can cover for him defensively, and he's improved there too. So I think what I'm trying to say with this um, in summary really is that uh, these these player types uh, and these skill sets are super valuable, but not if you're not if you don't have the rest, um, the foundations in place already. You both have just said a lot of things that I could just. I feel like we could spend the entire episode talking about some of the points that you two just brought up. But one metaphor that I want to take another step further, we've brought up ingredients and fitting together a couple of times. I don't know how much you two cook or know about cooking, but if you think about skill sets as being different ingredients and recipe, if you think about like that fourth, fifth type of option on a team, that's like the garlic and the onions of your recipe, right? It's going to enhance anything that you make and pretty much anything that you're going to cook that's going to be very flavorful is going to be covered in that. You're going to throw in your chili powder, you're going to throw in your cumin, whatever else you're going to toss in there. But like, if I just doused onion and garlic with cumin and chili powder, like that's not a meal. You're not going to really enjoy yourself just eating that. You need to have your primary protein or your primary veg or whatever it is that's going to be showcased in your meal. And the thing actually that makes Steph Curry really valuable and separates him from somebody like Duncan Robinson is that Duncan Robinson is very solidly a garlic right? He's going to be tossed in there, but you need everything else to make him function well. But Stephen Curry, Steph Curry can also be like a chicken breast, right? He's not the top tier chicken breast. Like I wrote an article that was titled like, uh, the best player is not always the best player. And my whole point there is that you have to be thinking about who's the fir- the best first best player and then the best second best player. And when you think about the first first best player, that's like someone like LeBron or Durant, like you run everything through them and they're going to carry you to some good heights. Uh, And Steph Curry is probably like the fifth or sixth best first best player, but he's also the best second best player by an unbeatable margin. Like the difference between him and the next player that's the second best player in the league is like, I don't even know. It's such a chasm that you can't really even measure that. And that's what makes somebody like Stephen Curry special when it comes to team building. 
I think the only player who's even close to Steph's level as the best second best player, and and I don't think it's really super duper close, is Scottie Pippen on those Dynasty Bulls teams. Um, they win in different ways, obviously, but in terms of being the second best guy on like an all time great team, uh, I think he's the only one that can kind of touch Steph's resume there. I really, really like that metaphor that you gave. Uh, shout out Duncan Robinson as a garlic. Because really, yeah, what we're talking about here is layering flavor. And without the core staple of your dish, all the flavor that you're building around it, it just doesn't come together. Um, and we can talk about other skill sets that kind of help that, that dish come together. Um, different seasonings and spices because we are, we are cooking a grade A meal here, baby. So we talked about, you know, being able to move without the ball. We talked about, you know, the difference between an average versus a historically great shooter. Like uh, I think Seth Curry is another good example of this where they, they took like Josh Richardson, who is a, it's a fine, right. Outside shooter, you know, career 35, 36% decent volume can hit him off the dribble sometimes. And all of a sudden, because they're kind of in gridlock and a lot of other places in their offense, uh, they're maxed out. Almost, I would say, if you're going to build around Simmons and Embiid for now, um, you have to find those little margins of advantage and just getting Seth Curry and putting him in those opportunities where Josh Richardson was, is making a huge difference. I think they're, they haven't, they haven't lost a game when Seth Curry and Joel Embiid play last time I checked. Um, so, (laughs) So that's when having a really, really good shooter makes a difference. Um, Let's talk about after the catch, because we kind of brushed upon that with talking about Steph and his ability to punish guys with the dribble if they close out too hard. Um, I think another thing we all really value is making quick decisions. Um, And that can come in a multitude of ways, you know, whether it's to swing the ball to the next guy, uh, put the ball on the floor or put the ball on the floor and then draw the defense and then make a quick decision to pass or score. Um, We think that's the lifeblood in a lot of ways of uh, the elite offenses. Let's start with quick passing because um, this is something, I mean, the jazz just won 11 games in a row. And I think they're the, that's the precipice of quick passing in the NBA right now. I think we mentioned this. I don't remember if it was on a sense and scalability podcast or if it was a premium hoops podcast, but at one point somebody made the point that Donovan Mitchell, the primary creator is actually maybe not even like a top three passer on their team. When you consider this idea of quick passing. So Mike Conley, Mike Conley can be more of a primary creator. He definitely was more primary ish uh, like four or five years ago when he was with the Grizzlies, but he functions well as a secondary creator. But when you look specifically at like uh, Royce O'Neal or especially Joe Ingles, Joe Ingles might be like one of the best passers in the league, but he just doesn't have the tools to be a primary creator. But when you're flanked by these guys that can make such good, accurate, and quick decisions, your offense just flows so quickly. And then I know that we say that uh, Rudy Gobert isn't necessarily like a rim runner, on the level of like Bam at a bio, but he's still like seven one with an enormous wingspan. And so when you have that much pressure going in towards the rim and you have all the shooters around the perimeter that can make these uh, really quick decisions or hit uh, three pointers, pretty much covered by anyone. Th- that's a lot of pressure that's being pushed on a defense from a lot of different angles. And this is a big reason why we here at premium hoops and the, the three of us here on sense and scalability love the jazz uh, and just motion offense as a whole is so fun 
But I think what makes guys with this secondary ball handling ability and this ability to kind of make those quick passes and maybe run a little bit of pick and roll so helpful, um, Joe Ingles is an excellent model for this, I think, is that they can be used with your best guys or they can be used to kind of steward the bench units while uh, the best guys are getting some rest. So from a rotation perspective, you can kind of um, you can stagger these guys and switch your rotations up in a variety of ways because you know that you're you're always going to have a good steward of the offense on the court and available to play. So Donovan Mitchell can grab a break and Joe Ingles can just run one of the fun the most fun pick and rolls uh, partnerships with Rudy Gobert for like four six minutes and then Donovan Mitchell can come back in or whatever. And so uh, I think there's an underrated human element here at play too. And I think this is one of the negatives of uh, the heliocentric offensive design is that motion offense and guys who keep the ball swinging 0.5 second or less decision makers are just fun to play with. And they enable the offense to have wheels that are just greased and everybody is happy because they have the ability to play the game and make decisions for themselves and help their teammates and set things up. Um, You just don't have the squeaky wheels that you get for a heliocentric offense, especially a heliocentric offense that is not winning games. Um, I like to kind of use the Hawks as the example more so in the past seasons. but it's one thing to have a heliocentric offense with James Harden at the helm and you're winning games, you're making the second round of uh, the playoffs. It's another thing entirely to be in the dregs of the Eastern Conference with a heliocentric offense because winning kind of does fix everything to some extent. And these guys that aren't getting the ball on losing heliocentric teams aren't going to put up with that for very long. So quick decision makers are really important because they help you break down defense, but they're also just fun to play with. And vibes are important, I think, in team building. Um, the Lakers have a very underrated element of uh, strength in their team uh, and the design of their team because they have wonderful chemistry and they like playing together. And the Jazz right now, if we look if we look historically, like not super historically, but the last few years, they're kind of in the same realm as that 2014 Spurs team, which to a lesser extent was like the 2020 Heat last year. It's just the Heat kind of petered out because they ended up facing LeBron James and Anthony Davis, which is, you know, a duo that's going to take a lot to beat. But when you look back at that 2014 Spurs team, yeah, they knocked down an insane amount of three-pointers in that uh, final series. But you have some of the quickest, smartest passers who are able to whip around the ball on an offense probably ever seen in an NBA offense. At that point, you have Tim Duncan, who, you know, he's not Rudy Gobert at age 38. But at that point, he's like, look, I'm not trying to post up a ton of times. I'm just want, trying to protect the rim and move the ball around a little bit. You have Manu Ginobili, who's maybe one of the best secondary passers like that in league history. You had Boris Diaw coming back rejuvenated, feeling like he's one of the best secondary passers of all time. Tony Parker, just one of the quickest point guards that can create uh, that advantage by breaking down the defense and causing this whole, being the catalyst for these quick passes. And I, I don't know, can the Jazz be the 2014 Spurs? And right now, from what they're showing us, maybe they're looking like it right now. Yeah, and I'm not sure whether we are just kind of focusing on the salient and fun example from a viewership perspective, um, or if this is really something that's meaningful. I'd like to see some kind of statistical analysis done of these like really fun motion offense teams. I have no idea how you would do this. Um, if anyone wants to take this idea and run with it, please do. But um, they're they're just so fun to watch. But they really do seem to win games. Like even on the lower ends of these kind of team construct ideals, uh, where People are like players are willing to play together. They're having fun. They're swinging the ball. Nothing's sticking and everybody wants to be collaborative. 
Um, even on the lower ends of these teams, like look at the bubble suns from last season. They were kind of playing motion principled offense. They kept the ball swinging and they were one of the most fun stories of like the past couple of years for me, frankly, and really just a team I really enjoyed watching. So I think the jury may still be out on whether or not this is like a winning formula at the very highest levels, which I think is why in the wrong initiator pod, we talked about how great it is to be able to switch seamlessly between heliocentrism and motion. But I really like the Jazz this year, and I really think that they're going to be a fun test case of this theory. I think something, too, with the Jazz that not all of these other teams have is, and I'll be pounding this drum all season, they have Rudy Gobert. And we talked about it in the Room Protector episode, but Rudy Gobert is, like, one of the best Room Protectors we've seen. I mean, if we had a pantheon of Room Protectors all time, like, he's either in it or he's looking right on the outside of it. He is just a tremendous Room Protector, and they've built the perfect offense to complement that, and they've built the perfect offense to complement the fact that Donovan Mitchell isn't a James Harden-type uh, primary creator. And also, I w- I'd feel really bad. I should shout out Danny Green, who was also on that 2014 Spurs team, because Danny Green is our uh, the patron saint of this episode right now. Yeah, yeah, and he makes quick passes. Um and I think that that's another area where a lot of people don't realize, like he has been able to foster so much positive ball movement and his presence along with Seth Curry has just made a world of difference for what happens after the initial dent is created by an Embiid post-up or a Tobias, you know, pick and roll or whatever. I want to actually segue to Tobias Harris because he was actually who taught me that these quick reads don't come easy for off ball players. Um, when he went from, the Clippers to the Sixers. I actually had an article at Liberty Ballers. I was kind of bouncing around SB Nation blogs at the time. And I talked about how he struggled to make these quick high level reads when the ball got swung his way, playing alongside Ben Simmons, Jimmy Butler and uh, Joel Embiid, specifically in the Raptors playoffs where Butler took a much larger share of the creation uh, opportunities. And so yeah, I, I, I thought that, you know, I was kind of still learning a lot about this specific role and this what this specific skill set needs. And I thought, oh, well, Tobias Harris can shoot. You know, he can hit a corner three. Uh, what, what, what's wrong with, you know, playing him a little bit more off ball? And what's maybe not great was he struggled to, like, make the open pass or attack the closeout quickly, precisely, and – I think a lot of Sixers fans are excited about Tobias Harris this year because he's, you know, starting to show that he's adapted to that role. Um, I think Sam Cassell had a quote about Tobias Harris when he was at the Clippers. That was a, anything that can be associated with a machine can be associated with Tobias. If you want him to, if you want to teach him something, you've got to program it. And, you know, a lot of guys usually fall into that category where if you throw them into a completely new situation, there's going to be some growing pains. And it makes you kind of appreciate, you know, the Danny Greens, the Ingles types, who not only are great shooters, but also can just be chameleons based on whatever is around them. And I think what we're kind of getting at here, um, these guys are fun to play with, but we had, like you said, Tobias Harris had kind of had to calibrate what his new role was. You saw him passing up open shots or sometimes refusing or not seeing the open pass. And this season, he's finally kind of got that balance right to some degree. But what these guys 
their skill sets lend to this idea for sure. But I think you also hear it in the way their teammates describe them. Like guys like Tobias Harris, uh, guys like Joe Ingles, guys like um, Garrett Temple for the Bulls are described as these just great teammates and wonderful guys to play with. And I think, yeah, that that's true on the basketball court. But I think from a mental perspective and just a processing perspective, it shows a willingness um, and an ability to look for the right decision. I call these kind of basketball players solvers. They want to make the best possible decision within the context, whatever, whatever contributes to winning basketball. Um, and I think a guy that you see this with at the next level who I think could be secondary or could be a primary because he has the ability to do both. And that's what makes him such an attractive prospect is Cade Cunningham. And uh, people describe him in the way he plays the game as um, almost kind of frustrating in the in the Oklahoma State context because he's not surrounded by players who allow him or are willing to or able to be the solver that he is. And so he'll see solutions that other guys don't. And it's just got to be frustrating to play in that kind of context. Whereas at the NBA level, when you can play alongside guys like Danny Green, Joe Ingles, um, Garrett Temple, Tobias Harris now this season, um, it's just a lot more fun to play. And it also results in better basketball decisions and more efficient offensive play too. And, you know, I should mention that while these guys are great, sometimes they are held back by, you know, their skill development. Like with Danny Green, while he sees every angle, he can't really put it on the deck too often. Um, so that definitely limits him to uh, moving the ball or, or shooting. Usually uh, if a guy closes out really hard on him, he's not really going to punish that. Um, Tobias, while he's improved, is still not like a lightning quick passer on the level of these guys. Um, Joe Ingles uh, kind of marries both of them really well, but maybe isn't going to quite burn guys off the catch when he gets the ball. He's going to have to like set them up a lot more deliberately. Um so it's kind of interesting when you have to kind of think about a, what is this player's tendency or awareness or recognition level and what skill sets do they have that allow them to extract this? A guy like Lonzo Ball may have all of this stuff, um, but because he's not a reliable shooter, he can't even extract it in the first place because that initial proposition of, oh, we need to stop this guy from getting an open three isn't there. And maybe I haven't been watching uh, Lonzo that closely, but I feel like he also doesn't have the ball handling chops to punish teams either. I mean, that's why he's not a, I mean, that's why they need someone like Eric Bledsoe next to him and Drew Holiday before that, because he can't be the primary uh, starting point for an offense. So he's hurting you by not being a consistent and damaging three-point shooter, but he's also hurting you by not being a ball handler that can take advantage of uh those uh, take advantage of attacking the defense, I guess. I, I'd say, I, I'd say he has enough requisite ball handling to like attack a closeout, but I definitely agree that there's not much shake to his dribble and he's not going to create advantages through it. He's only going to prolong advantages through it. If that makes sense. Yeah. You don't want him running a ton of pick and roll on ball. Um, but if the shot is falling and that's why the shot is so important for Lonzo specifically, then he can definitely attack those closeouts and it gives him a little more runway for getting to the rim, which, um, kind of touches on something I wanted to discuss here. And that's wiring in the, in the context of these kind of glue guy players. Um, and so we've talked about this in the, in the case of a couple different guys, I think sometimes wiring is, almost kind of an impetus for guys to find a different way to solve the problem. Like Danny Green, um, 
Danny Green probably had to get better at passing and keeping the ball swinging and catching and shooting because he knew the the handle wasn't going to come to him as he's as easily. Um, so, but at the same time, there are other other situations where um, guys don't want to do the thing, and so they they have to find other ways to solve the problem, but they can't. And I think Lonzo is one of those those situations right now. He shows a pretty strict unwillingness to attack the rim. I think it's because his free throw shooting is so bad. Um, but I also think he lacks some of that upper body physicality. Uh, he did add some upper body strength for sure. He improved his core strength for sure. Um, but he still doesn't really get to the line like you'd want him to. And I think he's still in the process of inventing himself into a catch and shoot player that's reliable off ball because that'll really help make the other parts of the game that are currently difficult for him easier and even if they don't come along he'll still have a way to provide value like these fifth guys at the end of the day they do need to have some way to provide offensive value as a scorer you have to be able to score the the ball or you're not going to get guarded even pj tucker makes corner threes so Everybody's gonna got to find their way to contribute off ball, even if it's off ball, even if it's just corner shooting um, as an offensive player. And if what you bring in the other aspects of the game bounces that out and makes you worth keeping on court, you'll get minutes, you'll get contracts, and winning teams will take care of you. And I think about this in the context of that uh, development of feel article that you wrote, Evan, because I've been I've been reading about learning a lot too, just you know outside of the concept of basketball just because I'm a teacher, but it also all applies to skill development in basketball. And when I'm thinking about a player that's developing by just, you know, you have that like giant net machine that rebounds for you and then kicks out a pass right back out to you. There's never a point in a basketball game where you're just going to be able to shut off your mind and just catch perfect shots, square up and shoot. And I feel like you can kind of see that in some of these players. It almost feels like that's how they really did develop. And those are the players that don't necessarily make it or have that much of an impact on offense because yeah, they're great shooters in practice. They look really impressive, but when it comes down to changing that last minute thing of, Oh, someone's going to close out on you. Oh, there's going to be a teammate that's open over here. Oh, someone's going to be cutting to the basket that kind of throws off the wiring of, Oh, I'm just going to catch and shoot in this situation. Yeah, the example I like to use for that um, is if you watch Dwight Howard shoot threes uh, during warmups, he's a pretty good shooter, but you never see him shoot during the game. And I think that's because of some of the mental aspect, but also some of the biophysical aspect um, or sorry, biomechanical aspect. So from the mental aspect, he's not comfortable with the idea of defenders closing out. Um, That's for sure. I think. it shows also in his his kind of poor free throw shooting too. Like he definitely gets shaken by pressure when he's shooting the ball, um, and I think that harkens back to the biomechanical issues. Uh, I don't think he has a super quick release. I don't think he's super duper comfortable squaring up off catch and the kind of the pre shot footwork organization. Um, and then I also don't think his mechanics are super comfortable just as a guy who's so strong with such long arms at the line. So you can tell mentally he doesn't feel comfortable with it. And I think it has a biomechanical backing, but some guys just aren't kind of capable of getting past that, um, in the time it, in the, in the time they have in the league, I guess, because I think if you, if you tried to develop these kind of glue guy skills, these, the catch and shoot, you know, quick passing, stuff like that, quick decision-making. I think you could, it's just everybody learns at different rates and the time uh, players last in the league is variable for sure, especially depending on like draft investment or monetary investment by a team. So it's all about kind of choosing what do you want to focus on to to make a guy's career the most impactful it can possibly be. And for some guys, the catch and shoot, the glue guy skills just aren't in the plan. You have to find different ways to make them useful. Um, And a lot of times they, they aren't as... I guess coveted in free agent markets and drafts and stuff like that 
because teams don't like to think outside the box and kind of find ways to make the most of unique skill sets. Um, that's kind of a, uh, a reiterative point that I make um, basically every episode in this podcast. So um, teams need to get weird with it. They need to be creative. And just because a guy doesn't fit in the box of these scalable offensive players doesn't mean they can't be scalable. It just means nobody has done it in an efficient and productive way just yet. Speaking of scalability, I want to kind of talk about the complications that stem from if your primary creator doesn't always have or can't always leverage these off-ball skills, these ancillary skills. Because you talked about Steph. He's a guy who can run your offense, be somewhat heliocentric in his own Steph way, but also be a huge destructive cog in a motion offense. Um, Cody, one question you wanted us to bring up is Trey Young. And I think a lot of people wonder, oh, why can't you use Trey like you use Steph? Get him off ball. Now Hawks haven't quite found the second ball handler yet. In my opinion, they've they have a, they have a lot they have a lot of very good third ball handlers, I guess. In Gallinari, DeAndre Hunter, even Bogdanovich, I would say is more of a third ball handler so far than a second one. Um, but I think there's also like a good question of like, do you want Trey off ball that much, even though he can make a lot of shots? So I think of two archetypes when it comes to good passers that are also really good shooters. You have Steph Curry on one hand, who's he's not a fantastic passer. He's a good enough passer, but his shooting is off the charts. But then you have the type of like Steve Nash, somebody that's going to meticulously uh, run your offense, maybe the best passer of all time. And if it's in his hands, things are going to go well. And right now it feels like there's a, a pull between these two sides with Trey Young. And I feel like, especially since it's most salient right now, people are like, oh, Trey Young's going to be the next Steph Curry. But Trey Young really doesn't show the off-ball movement, the off-ball screening, uh, the interest in not having the ball that Steph Curry has. Um, but also, on the other hand, he is a fantastic passer. His shooting, I think he thinks he's a much better shooter than he is. Uh, I would like to see him cut out some of the fat on some of those shots. And he's just not quite to the level of Nash on that level. So he's weirdly caught in this no man's land right now. And, you know, I expected the Hawks. I wasn't super high on the Hawks because of defense, but actually their offense is a little bit worse than I expected this year. They're right around the same level of the Sacramento Kings and the Boston Celtics and about six points per 100 possessions behind like the Milwaukee Bucks, for instance. And I just, I didn't see that. I kind of thought Trey Young would be able to morph into a more damaging off-ball threat when he's surrounded by uh, more of these secondary and tertiary creators that he has right now. So I don't know what you two feel about Trey Young, but am I often kind of being nervous about Trey? Is it way too early? Maybe it's too early because point guards do develop later. So tell me if it's too early. No, I don't think it's too early to be concerned, although I do still think that Trey is a pretty pretty attractive piece as the integral guy for a winning team if you build around him correctly. And so Travis Schlenk definitely likes to, I don't know, I guess to put it politely, build to a template. Um, he's very comfortable with the idea of building what uh, an offense that's kind of similar to Golden State or at least like similarly staffed. So he got the the stretch shooter who can shoot out to the logo and can hit off movement and can run an offense in different ways uh, after he's kind of established that gravity. He's, he's definitely been looking for that secondary um, playmaker for sure because I think he sees, and I would agree with this, that you 
to maximize Trey, you have to get him off ball more than he is right now. Um, and I think this go, touches back to the points we were talking about in terms of it being more fun to play on a motion offense, it being more fun to play on uh, a team that actually moves the ball as opposed to a losing team with a heliocentric design. Um, that said, I'm a little worried about Trey for a couple reasons. I'm a little worried that he doesn't want to be put off ball more. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I get this kind of feel watching him that he would prefer to be running the show like Harden instead of moving off ball like Steph. I don't know if that's true. Um, I don't want to put like words in his mouth or like cause to his actions or anything like that, but that's what I see. Um, and two, they haven't, I don't think, found that secondary creator yet, so I don't think Herter's that guy. I do think Bogdanovich can be that guy at a mid tier playoff level maybe but probably not a real contender but it's a it's an at least at least a stopgap to test the theory and Gallo can play a little on ball too so I like what they've done um their injury issues at the start of the season I think have kind of put the brakes on testing that idea for now and they need to kind of build that chemistry and get comfortable with the idea of moving Trey off ball test some some schematic uh ways where they can get him off ball that actually work consistently from a coaching perspective and I think it'll look a little bit better later in the season, but I do not think that you're wrong to kind of question um, how that will work for Trey, at least given what we've seen so far. One concern I have with like the limits to off-ball Trey is you talked about how their offense has been slightly disappointing, but it's still like league average. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, yes, Trey takes some dumb shots, but if he's running the show, you're probably going to be a league average offense at this point with the proper talent, with the proper, you know, kind of ancillary talent. And I think it's important that you stay around a league average offense or better if Trey is your point guard, because you're not, I mean, they've been a pretty good defense, but at the highest levels, I don't know if all those core tenets will stay intact if teams are, you know, trying to exploit Trey on the other end. And I, I know that it often gets brought up too much like oh that guy's small you can't play him you can't you should never sniff a playoff rotation but in Trey's case he's historically bad as a defender and as a result if you're playing him off ball too much are you getting enough team offense on a consistent possession to possession basis to justify the defense that he is undoubtedly probably going to not bring i think we can extrapolate that question even a little bit further and i don't know if this is harsh but i'd like to get you guys's view on it is it worth having trey as your number one guy if your offense not only like I, scott you said average is it worth having trey as your number one guy if your offense isn't top 10 with him on the floor because he's one of the league's worst defenders and i don't think he's ever going to improve too much beyond that man i have a lot of thoughts right now and it's really tough to process all of them in the context of a podcast when there's the the stress of having to put this out there and not having the time to think about this. So I'm doing this all on the fly. Uh, the Hawks are right now a top 10 offense. They're number nine right now in offense. But my main point is I expected them to be much better than that. I mean, Trey Young's passing is he's, I don't know, a top five passer right now at the point guard position. And I'm just a little disappointed that they're not top five or even like top three right now. And maybe my expectations are way too high for him, which is very much possibility but right now being two points better than league average on offense I think the question is if he can't carry a team beyond that is his defense worth it I don't know if it is I would like to see more of a plus four plus five above league average before I'm like yeah we'll start sacrificing uh his defensive 
uh, we'll start sacrificing on defense to get an offense like this, sort of in the line of Steve Nash, like I was bringing up before, but we're not seeing that. But once again, Steve Nash didn't run that sort of offense until he was 27, 28. So I don't know. I guess to refine my question, I think we're kind of in the pushback of heliocentrism phase of NBA discourse. And I do think there is a plus to heliocentrism, especially as a regular season vehicle and as a postseason vehicle, honestly, like obviously not to the degree that like the Rockets did it, but they were like a top five offense when Harden was at his best, you know, like at some point, yes, it's dumb to have only one mode to your offense, but you want to have the ball in the hands of your by far the best offensive player on your team. Um, and I think it kind of makes it a little bit more nerve wracking not to, because he's unlike Steph, he's not a passable defender. Um, so I guess I just want, I, I, I'm kind of trying to figure out what the balance is. Like, I really don't want Trey significantly altering his game. I don't think I, I want him to have some opportunities to nail threes. Cause I think he can really knock him down off the catch but I'm hesitant to think that off ball tray is like this thing that needs to be unlocked or anything. That's a really sobering thought, especially about the Rockets. Um, And I mean, they were, that Rockets team was, you know, a Chris Paul injury from maybe knocking out the Warriors and going to the championship. And let's even, if we played a hypothetical, if we change one thing in the NBA and Durant does not go to the Warriors, how many championships does James Harden win with the Rockets? And chances are he might actually have one maybe even two, just because they were the biggest threat at the time. Obviously, when you have something that earth shattering, other things in the NBA are going to be changing. Um, but it reminds me a lot of the uh, the Jazz Nuggets series last year. Um, if, if Mike Conley makes that shot in game seven in the first round, the whole discourse around Jamal Murray disappears just based on one shot. And it sometimes feels like we're too harsh on Harden and the Rockets in that sort of way. Because if one thing goes different, they could have a championship right now. So I I definitely appreciate that point because I think I definitely fall into the beautiful basketball mindset where we have evidence that heliocentrism does work to a degree. I think this kind of gets back to our wrong initiator discussion. I think it would be great for the Hawks to have a mode where Trey Young can be the primary initiator of a heliocentric offense, but I think they need to work on getting him off ball more, at least a little bit, so that they have another another look, so that they can't be countered quite like James Harden. And frankly, I think that Trey Young's next uh, developments are really kind of going to have to come on the offensive end because... I don't think that he's ever going to get to league average as a defender or particularly even close. So if you're going to see value improvements from him in the way that he plays the game um, enough to kind of compensate for his lack of defensive ability, you're going to need to see those on the offensive end. And you need to really, I guess, think to yourself critically, you as the listener, all of us, as we talk about this kind of think to yourself critically, where, where does Trey get better next? Um, to make that defense less of a concern and to make his team a winning unit. Um, and I think I have real questions on that, but Trey is a really smart player, a wonderful shooter, um, just, I mean, just a super, super talented passer, both with flair and with like kind of predictive processing ability. So I think he can do it. It's just a question of if the coaching staff is going to put the right players around him, um, which can be tough for sure. Trey is a lot harder to build around, I think, than Harden is. Um, 
and how they're going to choose to develop him and how he's willing to be to be developed going forward. Yeah, and Hawks will definitely be an interesting example of balancing um, prime, uh, you know, heliocentrism versus motion offense down the road. But, you know, regarding all of this, I think we did a good job kind of summarizing what we believe are the keys to a good overall team offense. Um, all right. So I think that is episode five in the books of sense and scalability. You can, if you have any questions or have anything we didn't talk about, uh, let us know at, at premium hoops NBA. Um, we are, let's check how many, let's check how many reviews we have on Apple podcasts right now. Apple podcast sense and scalability. So we have eight ratings right now. If we can get to 16, I will rattle off. We will discuss three bad takes that I've had in the past on the next episode and go into painstaking detail why I was wrong. I'll volunteer three of my own bad takes and we'll tear those down in equal proportion. Okay, that's when we get to 32. That seems reasonable. My, my bad takes are worth it. No, I'm just kidding. Yes, and then we'll get to Cody's bad takes because, you know, he's he's been at this for longer than us, um, a year or two to be specific. And uh, we will talk about his bad takes at the 64th rating. Just to tease them, a couple of them involve Jabari Parker and Greg Monroe in the Bucks, so get ready for that. Yes. Uh, exactly. So we're going to go by crayon box um, math. You know, you go to eight and then you go to 16. Uh, you go to 32. Oh, actually, no, it's the 24 is the box of crayons. And then there's 48 and then 64. 60, 48 is the first one that has, the, no, 64 is the first one that has the built-in pencil, crayon sharpener. Ooh. Um, I don't know if Ooh. you guys had that. That's an incredible, incredible uh, utility. Do you guys ever, have you guys ever just like, taking a whiff of crayons yeah like reminds you of your childhood you just, you just you just flip open the box and you just pre-covid days obviously <laughs> thank you for coming to the most prominent uh crayon podcast on this side of the internet um we're very lucky to have all you listeners here um yeah. you know as we release the podcast please drop your favorite crayon color in the comments all right and have a shocking pink day everybody